Chapter Fifteen of Stepping Heavenward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Teresa Downey. Stepping Heavenward by Elizabeth Prentice. Chapter Fifteen. October Fourth. Home again, and with my dear Ernest delighted to see me. Baby is a year old today and, as usual, father, who seems to abhor anything like merrymaking, took himself off to his room. Tomorrow he will be all the worse for it, and will be sure to have a theological battle with somebody. October 5th. That somebody was his daughter Catherine, as usual. Baby was asleep in my lap, and I reached out for a book, which proved to be a volume of Shakespeare that had done long service as an ornament to the table, but that nobody had ever read on account of the small print. The battle began thus. Father, I regret to see that worldly author in your hands, my daughter. Daughter, a little mischievously. Why, were you wanting to talk, father? No, I am too feeble to talk today. My pulse is very weak. Let me read aloud to you, then. Not from that profane book. It would do you good. You never take any recreation. Do let me read a little. Father gets nervous. Recreation is a snare. I must keep my soul ever fixed on divine things. But can you? No. Alas, no. It is my grief and shame that I do not. But if you would indulge yourself in a little harmless mirth now and then, your mind would get rested and you would return to divine things with fresh zeal. Why should not the mind have its seasons of rest as well as the body? We shall have time to rest in heaven. Our business here on earth is to be sober and vigilant because of our adversary, not to be reading plays. I don't make reading plays my business, dear father. I make it my rest and amusement. Christians do not need amusement. They find rest, refreshment, all they want in God. Do you, father? Alas, no. He seems a great way off. To me he seems very near. So near that he can see every thought of my heart. Dear father, it is your disease that makes everything so unreal to you. God is really so near, really loves us so, is so sorry for us, and it seems hard when you are so good and so intent on pleasing him, that you get no comfort out of him. I am not good, my daughter. I am a vile worm of the dust. Well, God is good at any rate, and he would never have sent his son to die for you if he did not love you. So then I began to sing. Father likes to hear me sing, and the sweetest sense I had, that all I had been saying was true, and more than true, made me sing with a joyful heart. I hope it is not a mere miserable presumption that makes me dare to talk so to poor father. Of course he is ten times better than I am, and knows ten times as much. But his disease, whatever it is, keeps his mind befogged. I mean to begin now to pray that light may shine into his soul. It would be delightful to see the peace of God shining in that pale, stern face. March 28th it is almost six months since I wrote that. About the middle of October, 
father had one of his ill turns one night, and we were all called up. He asked for me particularly, and Ernest came for me at last. I was a good deal agitated, and would not stop to half-dress myself, and as I had a slight cold already, I suppose I added to it then. At any rate, I was taken very sick, and the worst cough I ever had has racked my poor frame almost to pieces. Nearly six months' confinement to my room! Six months of uselessness, during which I have been a mere cumberer of the ground. Poor Ernest! What a hard time he has had! Instead of the cheerful welcome home I was to give him whenever he entered the house, here I have lain exhausted, woe-begone, and good for nothing. It is the bitterest disappointment I ever had. My ambition is to be the sweetest, brightest, best of wives, and what with my childish follies and my sickness, what a weary life my dear husband has had. But how often I have prayed that God would do his will in defiance, if need be, of mine. I have tried to remind myself of that every day, but I am too tired to write any more now. March 30th. This experience of suffering has filled my mind with new thoughts. At one time I was so sick that Ernest sent for Mother. Poor Mother! She had to sleep with Martha. It was a great comfort to have her here, but I knew by her coming how sick I was, and then I began to ponder the question whether I was ready to die. Death looked to me as a most solemn, momentous event. But there was something very pleasant in the thought of being no longer a sinner, but a redeemed saint, and of dwelling forever in Christ's presence. Father came to see me when I had just reached this point. "'My dear daughter,' he asked, "'are you prepared to face the judge of all the earth?' "'No, dear father,' I said. "'Christ will do that for me.' "'Have you no misgivings?' I could only smile. I had no strength to talk. Then I heard Ernest, my dear, calm, self-controlled Ernest, burst out crying and rush out of the room. I looked after him, and how I loved him! But I felt that I loved my Saviour infinitely more, and that if he now let me come home to be with him, I could trust him to be a thousandfold more to Ernest than I could ever be, and to take care of my darling baby and my precious mother far better than I could. The very gates of heaven seemed to open to let me in, and then suddenly they were shut in my face, and I found myself a poor, weak, tempted creature here upon the earth. I, who fancied myself an heir of glory, was nothing but a peevish human creature, very human indeed, overcome if Martha shook the bed as she always did, irritated if my food did not come at the right moment, or was not of the right sort, hurt and offended if Ernest put on a tone less anxious and tender than he had used when I was very ill, and, in short, my own poor faulty self once more. Oh, what fearful battles I fought for patience, forbearance, and unselfishness! What sorrowful tears of shame I shed over hasty, impatient words and fretful tones! No wonder I longed to be gone, where weakness should be swallowed up in strength, and sin gave place to eternal perfection. But here I am, and suffering and work lie before me, for which I feel little physical or mental courage. But, blessed be the will of God. April 5th. I was alone with Father last evening, Ernest and Martha both being out, and soon saw, by the way he fidgeted in his chair, that he had something on his mind. 
So I laid down the book I was reading and asked him what it was. My daughter, he began, can you bear a plain word from an old man? I felt frightened, for I knew I had been impatient to Martha of late, in spite of all my efforts to the contrary. I am still miserably unwell. I have seen many deathbeds, he went on, but I never saw one where there was not some dread of the king of terrors exhibited, nor one where there was such absolute certainty of having found favor with God as to make the hour of departure entirely free from such doubts and such humility as becomes a guilty sinner about to face his judge. I never saw such a one either, I replied, but there have been many such deaths, and I hardly know of any scene that so honors and magnifies the Lord. Yes, he said slowly, but they were old, mature, ripened Christians. Not always old, dear father. Let me describe to you a scene Ernest described to me only yesterday. He waved his hand in token that this would delay his coming to the point he was aiming at. To speak plainly, he said, I feel uneasy about you, my daughter. You are young and in the bloom of life, but when death seemed to be staring you in the face, you expressed no anxiety, asked for no counsel, showed no alarm. It must be pleasant to possess so comfortable persuasion of our acceptance with God, but is it safe to rest on such an assurance while we know that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? I thank you for the suggestion, I said, and dear father, do not be afraid to speak still more plainly. You live in the house with me, see all my shortcomings and my faults, and I cannot wonder that you think me a poor, weak Christian. But do you really fear that I am deceived in believing that notwithstanding this, I do really love my God and Savior, and am his child? No, he said, hesitating a little. I can't say that exactly. I, I can't say that. This hesitation distressed me. At first it seemed to me that my life must have uttered a very uncertain sound if those who saw it could misunderstand its language. But then I reflected that it was, at best, a very faulty life, and that its springs of action were not necessarily seen by lookers-on. Father saw my distress and perplexity, and seemed touched by them. Just then Ernest came in with Martha, but seeing something was amiss, the latter took herself off to her room, which I thought really kind of her. "'What is it, Father? What is it, Katie?' asked Ernest, looking from one troubled face to the other. I tried to explain. "'I think, Father, you may safely trust my wife's spiritual interests to me,' Ernest said with some warmth. You do not understand her. I do. Because there is nothing morbid about her, because she has a sweet, cheerful confidence in Christ, you doubt and misjudge her. You may depend upon it that people are individual in their piety, as in other things, and cannot all be run in one mold. Katie has a playful way of speaking, I know, and often expresses her strongest feelings with what seems like levity and is, perhaps, a little reckless about being misunderstood in consequence. He smiled on me as he thus took up the cudgels in my defense, and I have never felt so grateful to him in my life. 
The truth is, I hate sentimentalism so cordially, and have besides such an instinct to conceal my deepest, most sacred emotions, that I do not wonder people misunderstand and misjudge me. I do not refer to her playfulness, father returned. Old people must make allowances for the young. They must make allowances. What pains me is that this child, full of life and gaiety as she is, sees death approach without that becoming awe and terror that befits mortal man. Ernest was going to reply, but I broke in eagerly upon his answer. It is true that I expressed no anxiety when I believed death to be at hand. I felt none. I had given myself away to Christ, and he had received me, and why should I be afraid to take his hand and go where he led me? And it is true that I asked for no counsel. I was too weak to ask questions, or to like to have questions asked. But my mind was bright and wide awake while my body was so feeble, and I took counsel of God. Oh, let me read to you two passages from the life of Carolyn Fry that will make you understand how a poor sinner looks upon death. The first is an extract from a letter written after learning that her days on earth were numbered. Quote, As many will hear and will not understand, why I want no time of preparation, often desired by far holier ones than I, I tell you why, and shall tell others, and so shall you. It is not because I am so holy, but because I am so sinful. The peculiar character of my religious experience has always been a deep and agonizing sense of sin, the sin of yesterday, of today, confessed with anguish hard to be endured, and cried for pardon that could not be unheard, each day cleansed anew in Jesus' blood, and each day more and more hateful in my own sight. What can I do in death I have not done in life? What do in this week, when I am told I cannot live, other than I did last week, when I knew it not. Alas, there is but one thing undone, to serve him better, and the deathbed is no place for that. Therefore I say, if I am not ready now, I shall not be by delay, so far as I have to do with it. If he has more to do in me, that is his part. I need not ask him not to spoil his work by too much haste. Unquote. And these are her dying words a few days later. Quote, this is my bridal day, the beginning of my life. I wish there should be no mistake about the reason of my desire to depart and to be with Christ. I confess myself the vilest, chiefest of sinners, and I desire to go to him that I may be rid of the burden of sin, the sin of my nature. Not the past, repented of every day, but the present, hourly, momentary sin, which I do commit, or may commit, the sense of which at times drives me half mad with grief. Unquote. I shall never forget the expression of Father's face as I finished reading these remarkable words. He rose slowly from his seat, and came and kissed me on the forehead. Then he left the room, but returned with a large volume, and pointing to a blank page, requested me to copy them there. He complains that I do not write legibly, so I printed them as plainly as I could with my pen. June 20th. On the 1st of May there came to us, with other spring flowers, our little fair-haired blue-eyed daughter. 
How rich I felt when I heard Ernest's voice, as he replied to a question asked at the door, proclaim, Mother and children, all well. To think that we who thought ourselves rich before are made so much richer now. But she is not large and vigorous as little Ernest was, and we cannot rejoice in her without some misgivings. Yet her very frailty makes her precious to us. Little Ernest hangs over her with an almost lover-like pride and devotion, and should she live, I can imagine what a protector he will be for her. I have had to give up the care of him to Martha. During my illness I do not know what would have become of him but for her. One of the pleasant events of every day at that time was her bringing him to me in such exquisite order, his face shining with health and happiness, his hair and dress so beautifully neat and clean. Now that she has the care of him, she has become very fond of him, and he certainly forms one bond of union between us, for we both agree that he is the handsomest, best, most remarkable child that ever lived or ever will live. July 6th. I have come home to dear mother with both my children. Ernest says our only hope for baby is to keep her out of the city during the summer months. What a petite wee maiden she is! Where does all the love come from? If I had had her always, I do not see how I could be more fond of her. And do people call it living who never had any children? July 10th. If this darling baby lives, I shall always believe it is owing to my mother's prayers. I find little Ernest has a passionate temper, and a good deal of self-will, but he has fine qualities. I wish he had a better mother. I am so impatient with him, when he is wayward and perverse. What he needs is a firm, gentle hand, moved by no caprice, and controlled by the constant fear of God. He never ought to hear an irritable word, or a sharp tone, but he does hear them, I must own, with grief and shame. The truth is, it is so long since I really felt strong and well that I am not myself and cannot do him justice, poor child. Next to being a perfect wife, I want to be a perfect mother. How mortifying, how dreadful in all things to come short of even one's own standard. What approach, then, does one make to God's standard? Mother seems very happy to have us here, though we make so much trouble. She encourages me in all my attempts to control myself, and to control my dear little boy, and the chapters she gives me out of her own experience are as interesting as a novel, and a good deal more instructive. August. Dear Ernest has come to spend a week with us. He is all tired out, as there has been a great deal of sickness in the city, and father has had quite a serious attack. He brought with him a nurse for the baby, as one more desperate effort to strengthen her constitution. I reproached him for doing it without consulting me, but he said mother had written to tell him I was worn out and not in a state to have the care of the children. It has been a terrible blow to me. One by one I am giving up the sweetest maternal duties. God means that I shall be nothing and do nothing, a mere useless sufferer. But when I tell Ernest so, he says I am everything to him, and that God's children please him just as well when they sit patiently with folded hands, if that is his will, as when they are hard at work. But to be at work, to be useful, to be necessary to my husband and children is just what I want. And I do find it hard to be set against the wall, as it were, like an old piece of furniture, no longer of any service. I see now that my first desire has not been to please God, but to please myself. 
for I am restless under his restraining hand, and find my prison a very narrow one. I would be willing to bear any other trial if I could only have health and strength for my beloved ones. I pray for patience with bitter tears. End of chapter 15 Recording by Teresa Downey